Yeah, good morning, friends, and thank you, Alicia, Andrew, for uh, leading us in that space, leading us in worship, and setting us um, here as we continue in worship now. As Alicia was saying, that idea of kintsugi is that uh, being made into gold, or gold repair is that literal translation. Gold, um, gold joinery is the word there. And so, as we look to move and celebrate this season, is this echoing, by the way? A little bit? Okay. Andrew, do you want me to switch to handheld? Um, as we celebrate Advent over the next few weeks, one of the things we're looking for is um, to see how this joining comes into the story of Christ and comes through these, this passage of Scripture that um, oftentimes we can read through without maybe feeling what it's trying to give to us, what it's trying to evoke for us. And so we're going to be spending the next five weeks or so looking at uh, the, the genealogy of Christ in Matthew. And we're focusing on this story, the genealogy. This is the history of someone's um, coming into being, the history of someone's genesis. We're looking at the one in Matthew for a variety of reasons. Um, but as we do engage in the way that this genealogy includes surprising voices, the way that its order and the way it's written is surprising, the hope is that we can also find that our stories are in the story of God in new and refreshing ways. So join me for prayer as we open and posture ourselves to receive from God, and we'll continue on. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time and moment to pause We're grateful to be able to rest with you. And we pray that as we do set ourselves now to receive your word, speak to us and may we hear. We pray that the spoken word would be faithful to your written word, that it would lead us to the living word. And we pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. Everyone said, amen. Uh, when I was growing up, um, we often would talk about the Bible in the circles that I was formed in as a kind of handbook or manual for life. So uh, Kids Church, we had this acronym we would always say, like the Bible are, or the Bible is uh, basic instruction before leaving earth, right? B-I-B-L-E, we'd sing the song, basic instruction before leaving earth. And that's what the Bible is and was for us. And so I appreciate how my faith tradition really aimed to form a spirituality that is deeply biblical and deeply active. Like, that's a good thing. You don't want to downplay the importance of that in faith, in spirituality. And as a Pentecostal, the emphasis on the Spirit's movement and active participation in daily life, like, that's an exciting thing. It's empowering to be able to encounter the living, breathing God. And so the challenge that happens, though, when you have an approach to the Bible that's basic instructions for life is that sometimes we get, to, um, we get to a passage that doesn't necessarily translate easily to a basic instruction. And so you know that phrase, like, when, um, when all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail, right? 
When everything is supposed to be instruction, how are we supposed to make sense of passages that don't translate to that form, especially from Scripture? This led to me in earlier portions of faith, just skipping whole passages of Scripture and just overlooking them because I didn't know how to make sense of them. One of those passages is the genealogy, those lists of names and people. And so we get to these names, we get to these things, and we're trying to make sense. What does this story tell me about God? What does it tell me about myself, my faith story, my community? How do I find myself in this story of list of names? Um, and what's trying to be communicated through the genealogy? If you would, turn with me to Matthew 1, 1. We're going to read the beginning portion of a genealogy that frames out the New Testament. Again, this will kind of be our text moving forward. I'm excited about this series because as we engage this, um, this passage of Scripture, what we will do is we'll look at some characters that um, we might not oftentimes engage. We'll also be able to have uh, other people communicate and share their stories within the service. So excited next week as a plug, Andrew Enders is going to be leading us from the words. He's going to be preaching for us. And then the following week, um, Abby Sham, she's going to be preaching for us and inviting us into another space. And then um, I'll finish out the rest of the series going into Christmas Eve. So excited for the communicators that will be sharing story with us as we look at this story of Christ in Matthew 1. If you would, verses 1, or chapter 1, verse 1, this is from the NIV. The passage goes, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. That, friends, was six verses of the genealogy. There are 11 more that would continue on and express for us the history and story of, uh, of Christ through the history of Israel and the world. Now, this genealogy, as we discover over the next few weeks, is full of story, of theology, of learning, of inspiration, of application. It is full of that. And specifically, as we go through this series, we want to look at characters that are hidden on the margins sometimes. And so, when it comes to the Bible, a framework I like to use can be known as like a frame that engages the story in three different lenses. And sometimes these lenses overlap, but when we get to a passage like this, how does it apply to me? How does it translate to my life? Whenever you come to a passage like that, try doing this. The framework can be used to talk about, is it comfort, is it conviction, or is it commission? Is this passage a word of comfort? Is it conviction? Is it commission? Think about Jesus' miracles for a second. Oftentimes, all of those three things are happening at the same time. 
He heals the blind man. There is comfort to those who are in need of healing, who receive sight. There's also conviction for the, the, the way that he was marginalized on the side. And it's commissioned to say, will you be one who marginalizes or will you be one who brings healing? Right? There's a framework here that says, how do we engage a story or a passage of scripture that might not be easily applied uh, when we just look over our first reading? And so this idea, comfort, how is a particular passage a word of comfort to people who are hurting? That is one lens or one thing to pull out, engage in the scriptures. The question for that would be, like, who is being humanized in the passage? Who's being included in the passage? With the idea of conviction, how is a particular passage stirring me? Is it motivating me? Is it moving within me? So how is God energizing energizing my mind, uh, pulling at my heart? Who comes to mind as I read this passage? That's that conviction that's happening as I read. The last one, commission, how is God wanting to transform my actions or my community through a particular passage, through a reading of scripture? Like what's the call to action that God is inviting me to, us to, through a passage? So this framework, comfort, conviction, commission, that's a nice way to engage passages of scripture. Again, that when we just read on the first level, are difficult to run into. It's hard to make that translation of what does this say to me? As a spiritual practice, virtually any passage of scripture can be read this way, and uh, it can speak to us in one of these ways, in all of these ways. And so if you're ever trying to discern um, how to engage the story of God, this is one framework. It's not the only one, but it's one framework that can be helpful. Uh, And we're going to use that through the series as we engage the genealogy of God. There's no way around it. Um, This genealogy in Matthew is odd, and it's unorthodox. For one, we are a little unfamiliar with what genealogies mean and how they work in our life. Since we have uh, histories that can be written, since the invention of the printing press and our ability to write and record, that has changed the way that even genealogies work. Um, But in this context, genealogies are an oral history of where you came from, right? An oral history of how you came to be. And the way that genealogies typically are expressed, they, they come with a particular order. They start from the oldest or the source, and then it comes to the most recent, and so it starts at the source of the oldest, and it comes to the most recent. That's how the, the genealogies work. They also go through the, the lineage of the male in this ancient Near Eastern time. And so you'd see the names of the fathers. The father begat this father, begat this one. In the passage we just read, you heard that. This was the father of this one. So we have this frame from here to here, from oldest to newest. We have the frame of going through a particular vein of family history. And so if you look in Genesis 5 verse 1, that's one of the first genealogies where it talks about Adam to Noah, right? It goes from Adam to Noah, and it's the oldest to the most recent. This is typically how genealogies are presented. 
oldest to newest, through the males, and it's a way of connecting oral history. My story, our story, within someone else's story. Matthew is a little different. Matthew 1, if you noticed as we read it, starts by saying, this is about Jesus. And then it says, the order that is reversed. It starts there. Normally, genealogies start the oldest. Now it starts at the very beginning of Jesus and then connects it to the oldest to trace through to the most recent. That's a small, subtle change. But I love the way that E. Ann Clements talks about this. She's a theologian in the UK. Um, She says, the usual or the unusual introduction of this Matthew passage highlights the fact that Jesus is unique and that he stands at both the beginning and the end of history. We didn't read the remaining 11 verses of the genealogy, but if you look at the one in Matthew, he's at the beginning and he's at the end. He's mentioned two times. That's not normal for genealogies. In Luke, the genealogy in Luke, that doesn't happen. In Luke, it starts from the oldest and it goes to the newest in a pretty straightforward fashion. It follows the form of the time. But this one in Matthew is different. It starts with Jesus, it ends with Jesus, and it goes from new and then traces that back and then forward. So structurally, it's a little different. E.N. Clements, or she continues and says, the line of descendants starts with Jesus Christ and ends with Christ, the one called the Messiah, for Jesus has no progeny. Bauer, uh, she'll continue on and say, Bauer makes the point, this is another theologian, um, that entitling the genealogy with the name of the final descendant, starting it at the end, uh, this subordinates, or it flips the forefathers to last descendant and indicates that they gain their meaning from Christ. This is that subtle, subversive power of what this passage is trying to do to us. Right from the beginning of the New Testament, it's saying, this history is how you normally read it. Let me give you a different way to engage the history of God. It starts with Jesus, it ends with Jesus, and everything in between can be found in the life of Jesus. Normally, in this history, you would find your significance based off who your father was. And then they would find their significance who their father was. And your family history would be off of who the most important was and who the uh, most significant was. So through Genesis, you start seeing some of the genealogies cut people out because they weren't as significant as others in the following the male line. Again, this is how genealogies functioned. We're going to continue on. Uh, There's more that could be said. But structurally... I want you to consider the way that this passage in Matthew flips all of our expectations about who this is really about. Now for us, growing up in church, being in a church now, we might say, well, we celebrate Jesus every week. We'll, we'll, we'll mention that every week. But in this Christmas season, centering all of our stories on the genealogy of Christ, beginning and end, from the beginning to, um, to trace out where significance comes from. It's an important move for us to consider. The second thing I want us to consider in the genealogy of Matthew is that it includes women. There's ladies present in the the genealogy. 
In Luke, that does not happen. In other genealogies through the Old Testament, that does not happen. This is atypical for the time. Yet Matthew does this. It's staggering. It challenges, again, in the way that the structure has already challenged what a genealogy is meant to do, it also challenges who is included. Who can you hear the voice of God in and from? Who is God communicating to the world through? These are the questions that come as this genealogy, the beginning of Matthew, includes voices you are not supposed to normally hear from in this time. The genealogy, when we skip over it because of basic instruction, we miss that this is telling us, telling us about the nature of God's redemption. The scope of God's redemption. The way in which redemption comes into the world. Not exclusive to just the oldest, most significant male in a family line, even though that's included in the genealogy, but also through others. Others in a family history. The third thing to consider about this is the theme of outsiders. Outsiders included into the history of Christ. Assume it, this, this theme, it's introduced in terms of people who typically weren't associated as being in Israel's family history. And so if you look at the women, a lot of the women in the story, they are women who weren't included or aren't originally from Israel. They're not from Judah or Jerusalem. They're included in from outside of the family in a way that fundamentally changes how a family unit works, how it exists in the history. This is an important note for us that the genealogy in Matthew, unlike some of the other ones, includes people with the ramification to say, if, we, if these people are included in here, who can we include uh, as, as practitioners of faith into the story of God? The last thing that I want us to consider from these first six verses is the inclusion of one woman in particular. Her name is Tamar, or Tamar. And this text, in an unforgettable way, defines righteousness in her story in a context that is just different than how it has existed through the Old Testament. So Tamar's story, you can find it in Genesis 38. It's a story that is, uh, it's harrowing in some ways. She is married, and in the space where she's married, um, the text says that her husband was an evil man, and he died. It doesn't give any more details, but it says he was not a good man, and he dies. And then, in the way that uh, society exists in the ancient Near East, once you get married, um, if, if, the, some, if the person who provides for you dies, then you don't have a way of making ends meet as a woman in a society that's predominantly uh, patriarchal. And so how do you continue on? How do you live? Well, there's a couple ways to make this happen. One is that you would be given to one of the other men in the family uh, to become their wife. And this would be a way of continuing on uh, security 
you're tied into a family line. So when you marry into a family, you don't marry one person. You marry the family line. And if you die, then uh, you're still part of the family. It's a way of continuing on provision. This is ancient Near Eastern culture. And so in her story, she does get married to another person in the family. And the text says he was evil. And he died. And now the family is still supposed to provide for her because she's already been married. She can't join another family. How is she supposed to be provided for? She won't be able to marry anyone else, which essentially would mean that she's homeless. She doesn't have people to go to. And so this tribe, this, uh, this family, the family of Judah, they go and they're supposed to provide for her and they don't. They don't. They essentially say, go back to your father and become a widow there and wait for my youngest son to come until he's ready to marry you. And then that's how we will continue to provide for you because you'll be married again. Well, it's a ploy. And the text explains, as you read Genesis 38, this story of Uh, her not being provided for again. And so what she does in this this life of cycles, of continually experiencing the disappointment, the brokenness of a family, the failures of a family, to take care of those who they're supposed to take care of, she turns in desperation to something that... uh, that is a drastic move. It's the only move she has. She uses her agency, what she does have control of, which is her body. And as she engages in this story, she, um, she, she poses as a temple prostitute. And in this space, the patriarch of the family comes and uh, communes with her, meets with her, And does it in a way that she says, well, now that we've had this encounter, give me an identification of who you are. And the man thinking it's just a temple temple prostitute gives her the identification, gives him a cord and uh, a cloak, something to, to note. And so time goes on. She becomes pregnant. But now, remember, she is supposed to be a widow. She's not supposed to be pregnant because she's supposed to be waiting for the youngest son that's already been promised to her. But the family, they were just not going to do that. They weren't going to make that happen. So she was essentially living tucked away without any prospect of ever being able to make something of her life, to have provision in her life. And so... The, fa- the, the father of the family, Judah, he comes to her and says, what, what has happened? Obviously you're pregnant. Something has happened. This is wrong. Um, there's accusation thrown to her. And then she says, this is the man who impregnated me. And shows Judah's identification cord. Says, these are yours, aren't they? In that act, what she does is flip in this moment for Judah and for the whole family 
the way in which they have been uh, misinterpreting what righteousness looks like as it relates to God. What does it look like to live faithfully? This story is in Scripture. It's gritty. Right? Like, it speaks to broken systems. It speaks to the tendency for exploitation to happen in our society. It speaks to desperation. It speaks to the inability to be able to advocate for yourself in some avenues, and so finding other ones. It speaks to the brokenness and the grittiness, every expression of life. That's what this story says. One of the reasons that Tamar is included in the genealogy is that as she takes agency over her life in a society, in a context that doesn't give her agency, she reframes the whole relationship that not just one family, but Judah and then Israel has with the relationship to the law. What she has done is illegal. She has broken the law. But in that breaking of law, she's also exposed all of the ways that Judah's family, the family that's supposed to take care of her, has broken the law. And this is where law and righteousness and what is right, what is wrong becomes a gray gradient in this passage, in this scripture, because multiple people break laws. But what happens is that she is living from an understanding of righteousness that is rooted in relationship versus rooted in an adherence to a a written standard removed from her life. She has no choice. Again, when we speak about why these genealogies matter, they speak about real-life situations that we could see in our lives today. She lives righteousness in a way that practices relationship in relation to other social beings. We've noted that Tamar's story, it demonstrates that righteousness is not defined solely by the context of a legal Standard, but in terms of what it means to live righteously in relationship to someone else towards, um, towards flourishing. Tamar is a practitioner of risky righteousness. She's a practitioner of risky righteousness. And she is, in the genealogy, the foremother of Christ. She's the foremother of Christ. As she explains and lives out this story, her inclusion in this history that shouldn't even include women is starting to do a reimagination that we will see all through the book of Matthew. As Jesus lives his life, many times he gets accused for breaking the law, working on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, right? That's a breaking of law. But he's living by a standard of righteousness set forward by his foremother that says, is it the Sabbath made for man or is man for the Sabbath? Like, I am Lord over the Sabbath. In this way, just this series we just did, the way that Danny explained Sabbath for us last week, in the way that we looked at, do we have to participate in Sabbath? No, we get to. 
It's a re-understanding of the way that even the laws around Sabbath work. And Jesus, all through his ministry, he communes with unclean folk. And he doesn't do the ritual purifying that you're supposed to do in, in, able to, or in order to connect with them. He doesn't do it. Instead, he prioritizes humanity, agency, over adherence to a ritual religious standard. So what's so, notice, what's so notable in the text in Genesis 38 is that the model of righteous behavior is not provided by the upright Jewish patriarch of the story, where it's supposed to be, but it's by a woman, originally an outsider of Judah's clan, who's then further marginalized because of mistreatment that she experiences. And the story holds up the differences of society. If it's supposed to be here, and it's not supposed to come from here, guess what? This story flips it. Righteousness lives here. And that changes everything all the way up to the top. So the structure of this story in Matthew, the structure of this genealogy, that speaks to us in terms of order and flipping. The inclusion of ladies in general, that's already a shocking move. That changes everything. Not just women, but outsiders from Israel's place, from their people. That changes everything. And then the inclusion of this particular woman, this changes everything. How it changes everything lands in a couple ways. Before we unpack some of those, I'd love for us to take some time to just chew and reflect on the story. And I want you to think about this. Do you find comfort in this passage as we've unpacked Genesis and the genealogy? Do you find conviction in this passage? And in what ways would that look? Do you find commission in this passage? How does that look? You hear me say this often. As we read the passage, how does the passage read us? How is God speaking to us in the way that we find ourselves held into the light of the one the Bible uh, points to? So do you find comfort in this passage? Do you find conviction in this passage? Do you find commission in this passage? Let's take about five minutes, groups of four to five, break up and discuss together together. And then we'll regroup and reconvene after this. But yeah, let's break and uh, share together in whatever capacity you feel able to. As we circle back, one of our one of our commitments as preachers and one of our commitments in teaching is um, that we want to look at preaching as a kind of guided discovery. And so the aim of preaching as a preaching philosophy that we want to hold at Northeast is not just regurgitating my theology or whoever's preaching's theology. The goal is not to mimic in that way. The goal is that our preaching would empower and equip our church, God's church, to faithfully live out the gospel in all the expressions that, it, that exists in the community. So a model of guided discovery versus quote-unquote, the sage on the stage, right? It's not trying to do this. It's trying to create space for us to encounter and share God together. And so as we do that, as we ask questions about 
difficult text, challenging passage, um, was there something that stood out to you in your group that resonated um, that was just an observation that you hadn't thought of before? Anyone care to share a short share back from your group time? And now. Yeah, that's a great observation. Niall said, for those who couldn't hear, uh, just the, the difference between Luke and Matthew and that Matthews includes women, just sh- the fact they're different is already an observation that might not be, that might be lost in us sometimes. That's good. Anyone else? Well, as we um, continue this series looking at um, the way Jesus speaks to us in unexpected ways through this uh, oral history, I want us to engage this season of Advent with an openness to hearing God through different voices, through different stories we uh, might miss. And to that end, uh, we're going to sing a carol here, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is such an apt song for the beginning of Advent. But to start it, um, as it is Native American Heritage Month, we're going to listen to a rendition of it in Ojibwe from a Canadian uh, Aboriginal. And he uh, sings this, and there's also going to be a piece of art to reflect on. As we engage the song, O Come Emmanuel, through a lens and a language that is not our own, uh, be captured by the beauty of this and engage it um, as we continue then to sing in English. We'll transition and sing it in English. Let me pray for us that we may hear and close our time together and then let us meditate on this, uh, this carol in a different language. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We pray that as you speak to us this week, through your word, through creation, through our relationships, that you would open us up to be able to hear you through voices we might not expect, through stories we might not expect. And as we sing this song, O Come Emmanuel, we do pray that you would come quickly, that you would meet us and form us into your image. May we reflect you faithfully in the world and by your spirit be makers of peace and creators of heaven. Thank you for this season of Advent. Pray this with Christ by your spirit. Everyone said.
Küssen meinen Dom, deine Nachbarsetzer. Da die Kinder, die Kinder, immer ruhig. In Augen, dann ist er da, ist er ja. 